welcome back to Christ is the Cure. We are continuing through Nicaea, and today we are going to be talking about anti-Nicene theology, which means pre-Nicene, so pre-325 um, writings and theology and persons and heresies. Um, we're going to survey it. Um, you can always go deeper on everything we're talking about here. Um, in fact, uh, through reading through a variety of sources, I have chosen to base my organization on two particular sources, which is Stephen Wellham, uh, God the Son Incarnate, fantastic book on Christology, probably the only book you'll ever need on Christology, I'll link that in the description, and then Robert Lethem's The Holy Trinity, fantastic book, breaks all this stuff down really well. So the point is that for this episode and the next couple, I'm using those two sources as my organization point because people do it differently every time. So I actually differed from them in that in the first episode, we surveyed history from, uh, I believe we went from pre-Nicaea to Constantinople. Um, now we are going to go back to that pre-Nicene era or the anti-Nicene era. We're going to zoom in and look at the theology and the figures and things of that nature. Um, so... There's going to be things in these episodes where you're listening and you're like, I, I can't follow this. This is, this is too much. It's, it's above my pay grade kind of thing. And I completely understand because a lot of times it feels the same way. And so I'll try to explain it as best as I can. Um, but this is basically going to just get you to the creed itself. And then whenever we get to the creed, we'll break down each clause of the creed. So think of this as you're being thrown into the pool. You don't really know how to swim yet but you, you're going to go back into the pool and actually learn how to swim later, right? So this is your first time jumping in, then the second time you get better than the third time, right? Um, so that repetition is kind of key for me. Uh, personally, that's how I get through stuff like this and then uh, things of that nature. So let's go ahead and start this second episode. And before we examine the theology of the early church in Nicaea, we are left needing to discuss three preliminary ideas. Um, and one is a pitfall that we all have to avoid. So the first, which is that pitfall, is the tendency to fall into anachronism. Now, anachronism is simply reading an ancient writer in terms and concepts and ideas that were developed much later on in its own time. And what it is, in essence, is assuming our contemporary knowledge, our modern knowledge, our knowledge here and now and whatever year we're in, whenever you're listening to this, it's assuming that knowledge onto the ancient writer when the ancient writer would not have had the reflections, the precisions, the developments in language that we have now. And this happens quite often. We all do it at points, but a good example is whenever we read Trinitarian theology that we read or learn in modern textbooks, such as Wayne Grudem or Babnik or whoever, Whenever we pick those up and we have those concepts and then we go back and read someone like Athanasius or we go back and read someone like um, Irenaeus or Ignatius, someone in the early church, like before 325 even, we sometimes assume all of that language, all that knowledge that we have is what they're talking about whenever they haven't gotten that far in terms of developing that precision of language, which is really, um, I think, part of the crux of what we'll be discussing is this is the development of language learning how to articulate concepts in a way that errors can't sneak in. I think I talked about that in my previous episode. In fact, um, in the previous episode, I talked briefly about the confusion on usia and hypostasis. 
and how they could be used interchangeably. Now, if we look back on the Council of Nicaea, knowing the distinctions we know now, having that precision of those two terms, but we assume that uniformity on Nicaea, then we have a blurred vision of history. We have an inaccurate understanding of history. Robert Lethem speaks to this point too, and he says that the ancient author lacks the conceptual tools forged in subsequent battles and do not face the questions posed by later heresies. They think according to the light available to them, and so we must evaluate them in terms of their own times, and that's from the Holy Trinity, page 88. Uh, so this means that sometimes in their emphasis, and in an early writer's emphasis, we can easily miss context and attribute to them error, such as with Athanasius. Um, sometimes people say that Athanasius emphasizes deity too much, and it slips into a heresy called Apollinarianism, um, and, and accidentally undermines the humanity of Jesus. But whenever we read him in his own time and what he's he's addressing in his own time, and whenever we read him in his full context, we find that that's not the case. Um, had those developments occurred where they're addressing heresies after Athanasius' time, he might have been more precise. But in that moment, he's being emphatic against the Arian controversy, uh, which took away from the deity of Christ to one degree or another, right? Um, so sometimes you'll find that. You'll find an emphasis in a writer um, that without the context of either all of their letters or without the context of the history around them, we can call them heretical. Um, and that really happened. I mean, if you think about the New Testament, you can say the same thing about whenever you're reading Paul. Because there are times where Paul makes emphasis for the sake of rhetoric and for making a point where without his other works, we wouldn't have a well-rounded view of systematic theology in terms of Paul's literature. And of course, there's a distinction there between Paul as an inspired writer and the early church writings who are not inspired. So there is there is fallibility there, but still we have to read them within their context. And so if you want to get the theology of Athanasius, you read all of Athanasius. If you want to understand the theology of Clement of Rome, you read all of Clement of Rome. Um, there's there's much debate over Gregory of uh, Nyssa, right? Um, whether or not he was a Christian universalist. And whenever you read some of his writings, it certainly seems that way. He seems very hopeful about the restoration of all people at the end. And a lot of people just say, well, yeah, he's he's taken after Origen, and that's, that's who he is. Uh, but there's also debates about that, because whenever you read his later works, he seems to either contradict himself or change his mind on that. Um, so in order to get a full picture of one particular writer's theology, you have to read all the writings, which can be difficult in our settings because of translations and access and things of that nature. But um, the point is, is that anachronism is what we need to avoid. We need to avoid reading modern concepts back into <clears throat> earlier authors. Excuse me. So with this all said, it is true that there are errors because they are fallible men in the writings. And then we have to evaluate them according to scripture. Um, and even that, there's the issue of subordination. Um, if you don't know what that is, we'll talk about it here in a little bit, but it's uh, it's a heresy. But Lethem is quick to point out that with the early writers, subordination is placed within the being or the nature of God, which eliminates the idea of Jesus being a lesser God or the Holy Spirit being a lesser God or lesser force, whatever you want to call um, that position. So you will find issues like that, but we have to make sure that we're reading them as they were wanting to be read, essentially. Now, for our second preliminary idea, 
Um, in many instances, we find ourselves easily critiquing the use of extra biblical language in describing biblical realities when the language is sometimes necessary or simply convenient. Um, this is a big deal, especially when we're talking to someone who doesn't accept creeds and councils. Why do we have to use Trinity? It's, it's not in the Bible. Let's use Godhead instead. Things of that nature, which with, with that particular discussion, sure, use, use Godhead um, if you want. But for the early church, what you find is that the discussions center around the meaning of the biblical language itself. And so there needed to be this articulation that can explain those words and what they meant. So there, by necessity, it calls for a language outside of Scripture to explain what the words in Scripture means for clarity's sake. So there needed to be clarity when heirs um, were, were using and banking on that biblical language to slip through the cracks of the church. Because you could have the Arians, for example, um, affirming statements that only use biblical language because they just interpreted the biblical language differently. They changed the definitions or they used their own conceptions to understand the biblical text. And so the early Christian writers would formulate language to explain what they meant whenever they were um, trying to articulate what the Bible taught. Um, and we know this. Um, we, we see this in our own day when we talk to someone like a Jehovah's Witness, who is arguably a modern Aryan. Um, whenever we're talking to a Jehovah's Witness, they use a lot of the same language as us, but they have different meanings behind them. So how does that discussion go when we're talking to them? Well, we start using extra words and extra concepts that are not explicitly found in the text in order to explain what we mean. Um, this should be a logical thing to realize, but um, it seemed like it was necessary to address. Now, with that said, um, there is some truth to the idea that Greek thought was Christianized in some shape or form. You can't get around that when you're reading church history. There's some Greek thought that comes in. Um, but whenever we look at the language, Greek and Latin language, where words were used in a particular context before the New Testament or before the early church, uh, whenever the Christians took it, they would shift the meaning for the sake of articulating Christian theology. Um, Robert Lethem, again, is helpful here. He says, during the Nicene Council in 325, um, the Orthodox figure Athanasius comments on the innovation of the concept of the Son's being of the same substance as the Father. He states, quote, Athanasius tells us how it is included when it was proposed that the Son was from God, the Arians agreed, since they accepted that all creatures come from God. Therefore, so as to say that the Son is indivisible from the substance of the Father, always in the Father, and the Father is always in the Son, the bishops are forced to use extra biblical terms to convey the sense of Scripture, realizing that biblical language alone cannot distinguish it from the false teachings they are combating." End quote. So, Right here, we have Athanasius saying that this line of the Son being the same substance of the Father um, had to be used because the Arians would say, well, yeah, the Son is from the Father. We can all say that. What's the problem? Whenever what they were saying were completely different concepts. Yeah, the Son for the Arians was created by the Father. And for Athanasius, no, the, the Son is indivisible from the nature or the substance of the Father. He's always in the Father, and the Father's always in the Son. Um, so you have two different concepts using the same language of from God. And Athanasius, um, Lethem paints it as Athanasius regretting having to use that extra biblical language, but it being a necessity for 
the articulations are needing to articulate. And we, we see that again in our own day. So the point is, is that the per more precise articulation centered around the meaning of the biblical terms, which cause for extra biblical terms to be necessary and quite helpful. Um, for example, Trinitarianism is not explicitly found in the Bible as a term. However, it summarizes this concept that is made up of many concepts, the deity of the Father, the deity of the Son, the deity of the Spirit. Um, they're co-eternal, co- you know, you just go down the list, and it helps summarize what we believe in a precise way. It's, it's helpful. Um, and we use that for other things like um, the incarnation. We use the term incarnation to describe the Son taking on human flesh. Um, we use a bunch of different terms that help us summarize concepts, and we'll move on from there. So the last preliminary idea is tied to the second, um, and that is simply the reality that doctrine formed, or you can say it matured, I like matured more, in the face of heresy. Um, heresy has a positive aspect to it, and you'll see this throughout church history, and you'll see this in our day and age. And the positive aspect of heresy is that the early church is forced to focus and articulate against those errors and to better articulate their Christian theology. It is basically they're having to draw their lines in the sand and form um, articulated, well-reasoned positions from the biblical text on, in this particular um, setting, Christology. Christology, the doctrine of Christ, is the big sticking place, but there are, other course, other issues that pop up, such as the spirit fighters, as they are called. Um, Stephen Wellham states, quote, Ironically, as dangerous as heresy is, it also serves a purpose. Not only does heresy presuppose that orthodoxy exists, it also forces the church to respond to it by articulating in a more precise and coherent manner the, quote, faith that was once delivered for all to the saints, Jude 3, end quote, which is precisely what happened in the patristic era. And then Wellam further states wisely, in the development of theology, this is not to say that the church's doctrinal formulations are beyond dispute, only scripture serves that role. Yet historical theology serves a critical role in our theologizing, which we ignore to our peril. No theologian today approaches Christian theology from the beginning. Rather, we stand on the shoulders of giants and learn from the past's mistakes and learn from its constructive doctrinal formulations. In this way, church councils and confessions serve as secondary standards to scripture. Doctrine is worked out in the laboratory of history where ideas are tested for their faithfulness to scripture, end quote. And that's from Stephen Willem's God the Son Incarnate. So to summarize well, we do not hold to solo scriptura, but rather sola scriptura. The former, solo scriptura, is a way of saying that tradition is absolutely useless, meaningless, and it often disregards the faithful who came before us along with the creeds and confessions that they formed. It is ultimately a confession of an isolated Christianity focused upon individualism and the ignorance of the church. Sola Scriptura, however, which is um, properly articulated in the Reformation, holds that tradition is beneficial and that it's a guardrail to interpretation and acts as a summary of the gospel and basic Christian orthodoxy held by the church. It is a recognition of the church and unity on the core doctrine of the Christian faith. So with that all said, we can move on and start talking about the various heresies that arose within the anti-Nicene period. And of course, we'll discuss others as they pop up, but we're going to summarize some of the, the key ones early that appeared early on. So within our early days of the church, we have various heresies popping up. Um, we will discuss Orthodox teachers and their responses to those heresies, but surveying the heresies first 
so that you have the definitions in mind seems like it'd be helpful whenever we're talking about, well, Athanasius addressed X, Y, and Z. So with that said, let's go ahead and jump right into it. Um, one of the earliest heresies to arise was held by a group called the Ebonites. Um, and this group was associated with Judaism, and it rejected the deity of Jesus while denying that he was the Messiah promised in the Old Testament. Uh, this group was prominent in the second century, and uh, they lived on through the early fifth century. As you can guess, this means that they taught that Jesus was a mere man, and Irenaeus um, is the first to mention them as a heretical group, and Irenaeus is a um, church writer that we'll talk about later. Irenaeus also tells us, uh, quote, they use the gospel according to Matthew only, and they reject the apostle Paul, maintaining that he was an apostate from the law, end quote, and that is from Against Heresies 126.2. Irenaeus further notes that they lived according to the law, and they denied the virgin conception. Another group that would pop up would be the Elksites, who were influenced by the Ebonites' writings, but they differed um, in terms of Jesus' nature. For example, the Elksites denied the deity of Christ, but they maintained that Jesus was a higher spirit or angel. Following these two groups, we have a bigger group known as the Monarchians. And they would appear, and this heresy would have two primary branches or approaches. And these two approaches would be later known as adoptionism and modalism. Uh, the monarchians began at the same point. They attempted to preserve monotheism, the affirmation of a single god, right, um, to the exclusion of every other god. But they did so at the expense of the full co-eternal deity of the Son and Holy Spirit. So, like I said, there were two branches of this general idea, and the first was adoptionism, um, which is also called dynamic monarchianism, and it considered Jesus to be a mere man who was adopted as the Son of God because of his merits. From what I've seen, Theodosius of Byzantium, or the Tanner, is often credited with the first articulation of this doctrine in the second century. Now, Theodosius claimed that Jesus was born of a virgin Mary, and lived among men as a typical man, yet with pious vigor. Uh, due to his merits, his good works, Jesus would receive the Logos, um, and that is the higher Christ, or the divine spirit, at his baptism, uh, and this was signified by the descending dove. From here, Jesus was able to perform miracles as he was adopted to be God's son, and he was empowered because of his virtue. Um, so, to summarize again, Jesus did really well as a man who was born from a virgin, and so he received the divine spirit called the Logos, or Christ. And he received this at his baptism, and when he received it, he became the Son of God by adoption. Um, now, some adoptionists hold that Jesus was deified at his baptism, and others think that he was deified at his resurrection. Adoptionism would continue to live and develop through um, the 4th century in different forms, uh, most notably with an individual named as Paul Samosta and Fontus of Samarium. Adoptionism continues to be alive and well today, but it's less popular than Arianism and modalism. So the second approach to monarchianism is modalism. Modalism is also called Sabellianism, named after Sabellius. Now, modalism keeps the deity of Christ, but it rejects that the Father and Son share the same substance. So the Son was a mode of being 
and manifestation of the Father. So Wellam states, they so conceive of the Father, Son, and Spirit as modes in which God manifested himself. It was suggested that God manifested himself differently in each of three phases of world history, as the Father in the Old Testament, as the Son in the Gospel, and as the Spirit since Pentecost. In this way, they denied the personal distinctions between the Father, Son, and Spirit within the Godhead. This heresy lives on today in various uh, teachers, but it basically says that Father, Son, and Spirit are titles and modes that God lives in. So the Father becomes the Son, and he operates on earth, and then he becomes the Spirit, but it's all, um, there's no distinction between the three. They're just titles of the one God. Um, other heresies arose, and many of them come alongside a worldview known as Gnosticism. Gnosticism was a religious phenomenon, um, and it was a worldview, and it had different articulations and faces, and it would impact other um, views because it was very syncretistic. You could blend it with other ideas. But a central idea of Gnosticism that you'll often um, hear about whenever you hear about the topic is the idea of obtaining true knowledge of the divine and human spiritual realities. So Gnosticism um, is actually heavily debated nowadays in many ways, um, but we'll summarize what is traditionally understood as um, Gnostic teachings. So typically it's linked to Platonic dualism, um, which separates matter from spirit, right? There's this, there's this dualism between matter and spirit. And in Gnosticism, uh, there is this articulation of the physical or material world being inherently evil, while the spiritual world or the spirit world was potentially good. John Frame here actually is helpful um, in his history of Western philosophy and theology um, as noting that Gnostic teachings has this understanding of a scale of being. And so what this means is that at the top, you have the supreme being, uh, who is nameless, but sometimes is given uh, a name such as Bythos. And connected to the material world are semi-divine intermediaries. So you have the supreme being, and then you have these intermediaries between the divine being and the material world. And these are called eons. And they have names such as Logos, Zoe, Punoma, Psyche, etc. And for this worldview, the fall occurs when one of these intermediaries mistakenly creates a material world. Um, we are trapped in that world and must be reabsorbed into this nameless supreme being by various intellectual and moral disciplines that are taught by Gnostic teachers. Um, this constitutes secret knowledge that is given by Gnostic teachers so that we could have that various intellectual and moral disciplines that are necessary to be reabsorbed. And that's where the name Gnostic comes from, really. Um, so here, Gnostic um, teachings presents salvation via the secret knowledge and the supreme being was so transcendent, so beyond, that he could not be conceived, right? So we had to have these intermediaries. So there's this gap that's between the supreme being and the material world, and these intermediaries inhabit that space. Now, in various articulations, it is the fall of our world um, and that the intermediary known as the Demiurge created our material universe and human beings. Now, despite the gap between the supreme being and the material world, human beings are considered to be made up of the same spiritual substance of the divine supreme being. 
and we are trapped in our physical bodies, which are evil or inherently evil. Um, it is our being trapped in our physical bodies that we need salvation from. We need to be freed from our physical bodies, which are basically prisons. And we need to be reabsorbed into the supreme being. That is salvation in this view. We need to get out of these bodies and reabsorbed into the supreme being. Um, the being sends a redeemer and a messenger who is supposed to awaken the people of their true identity and their home via knowledge of the truth. Jesus, within Gnostic teachings, um, is that redeemer whenever it's mixed with Christianity. Whenever Gnosticism is mixed with Christianity, you find Jesus being that redeemer. Um, there's a lot of good discussion. In fact, one of my professors during my master's program um, had this great uh, discussion on how Jewish mysticism and syncretism and the fall of the temple in AD 70 allowed for Gnostic teachings to mingle more with Jewish thought to explain why things aren't going the way that Jewish people thought it was good. Like, why did the temple become destroyed? What What is really going on? And so um, the theory is that Judaism is where Gnosticism either formed or was facilitated. And then, of course, you see Gnostic writings or responses to proto-Gnostic, early Gnostic thought in the Gospels, particularly with John. Um, but those are all interesting discussions that you can really dive into. Gnostic uh, teachings and Gnosticism are heavily discussed and debated currently as we try to figure out what exactly it is. But since it is more of a worldview that can take on different forms and blends, it becomes difficult. Why we're talking about it here is because Gnostic teachings that led to this idea of inherently evil matter um, becomes a point of contention for the early Christian writers. But anyway, Wellam uh, notes that all forms of Gnosticism denied that Christ, the heavenly spiritual redeemer, became incarnate, given their antithesis between spirit and matter. So they argued that Christ either temporarily associated himself with the man Jesus, a form of adoptionism, or he simply took the appearance of a physical body, which is a heresy called docetism. For most Gnostics, the heavenly redeemer entered Jesus at his baptism and left him before he died on the cross. So Gnosticism mixed with Christianity ultimately took various forms and it ultimately denied the humanity of Christ. Docetism is the most familiar. And when you're reading up on Gnosticism, you'll find that most of the Gnostic teachings are identified by their teachers because that's where the varieties really come from. For example, Valentinian Gnosticism. Um, additionally, many false books of the New Testament can be traced to this Gnostic worldview, such as the Gospel of Mary, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas, and so on. In fact, they have new collections of the Gnostic writings that you can pick up and read, and you can see why they were rejected, despite how fascinating they can be. Um, a last consideration of heresy is subordinationism, which I briefly mentioned earlier, um, and this is the result of other heresies in most instances. And so it's kind of weird to put in its own classification because it's tied to others. But subordinationism is a term that points to a movement that held that Christ and or the Holy Spirit was inferior to the Father. Uh, the subordinationists could differ in how they viewed Christ. Um, he could be a created deity, such as the Arians, or he could be a mere human um, given the deity, given deity by the Father, such as adoptionism, but the basic premise is that the Son 
in his fundamental nature is inferior and subordinate to the father. Um, and so you would find um, the Aryans and the, the modalists and the adoptionists logically falling into a form of subordinationism. So I think that's going to wrap up our discussion today, the early heresies of the anti-Nicene period. And of course, we will talk about the Aryan controversy and other developments that come post-325 later. Uh, the next episode will discuss Christian writers and their articulations of Christian orthodoxy. As always, you can go deeper on all these topics. So if you feel so led, go research some of them. There's also more issues. I just highlighted some of the big ones. And I hope this was helpful in some shape or form. And we'll move on from here. And I want to just say thank you to my patrons who made this possible. Um, you guys continue to support uh, Christ is a Cure and make it possible for us to be partially part-time. Sounds kind of silly, but the, the goal is to be part-time uh, with this venture. And you guys make that possible. So thank you very much. And that's it. God bless you and have a wonderful, wonderful weekend.